On this hallowed ground where just a few days ago, violence sought to shake the Capitol's very foundation, we come together as one nation, under God, indivisible. It's a new year. We'll press forward with speed and urgency, for we have much to do in this winter of peril. With a new president and a new administration. We're entering what may be the toughest and deadliest period of the virus. We must set aside politics and finally face this pandemic as one nation. We will get through this together, together. With new plans to take on this virus. Today, I am unveiling a national strategy on COVID-19 and executive actions to beat this pandemic. This plan reflects uh, the ideas I set forward during the campaign and uh, further refined over the past three months. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. I'm Andy Slavitt, senior advisor with the White House. And the new team has been busy. There's been a lot happening over the last week and over the last 24 hours, and we appreciate you joining these regular briefings. I will turn it over to director of the CDC, Dr. Walensky. Thank you. I'm glad to be back with you all today. Good morning. To give you the latest update on the state of the pandemic. Over the last few weeks, a lot has changed in the fight against this pandemic in the United States. And now there are three briefings a week from various members of the White House COVID team, including the new boss at the Centers for Disease Control, Dr. Rochelle Walensky. Let's begin with an overview of the data. Despite some encouraging trends. In but the virus is changing, too. So let's get up to speed, shall we, on new variants, vaccines, and everything else we need to know as we begin what we hope will be the final chapter in the fight against COVID-19. Who are we going to talk to? One of my favorite experts on the subject. This is a Petri dish side dish, and this week we're talking to your local epidemiologist, Yes, you have a local epidemiologist, if you're on Facebook or Instagram, that is. Her name is Caitlin Jettalina. She's an epidemiologist at UT Health School of Public Health in Dallas. She's a researcher and a professor and the author of the blog, Your Local Epidemiologist, which is one of my favorite places to go to get dense science broken down into simple English. Dr. Jettalina has nearly 140,000 followers on Facebook, more than 10,000 more on Instagram. She also blogs on her website, yourlocalepidemiologist.com. So let's welcome her now. Hello, Dr. Jettalina. I've been following you for months on Facebook, and it's wonderful to meet you. Let's talk about your local epidemiologist. How did that start? When this pandemic started really back in February, March, the dean of our school was really interested in, as everyone was, what's going on, and especially our staff and students. We were really confused, um, and being a school of public health and being an epidemiologist, I really was on top of it. So we... I started doing daily updates for our staff and our my students in my classes, and some of my students really pushed me to start putting it on social media and Facebook and Instagram. And so it's really just been history since then. 
On your website, you are very clear about your goals with your writing. You say right there at the top that you're trying to make sense of a complex world through data and evidence-based approaches. I, I call it translating, right? Or translating not in a different language, but translating from science to lay men's terms so people can understand this fire hose of information. And it is a lot. There's a lot because I want these posts to be evidence-based. That's really important for me, that they're data-driven, evidence-based, and on, honestly, the most up-to-date science we have on this topic. I hope you don't mind doing a little bit of that for us today because there is a lot going on as we approach the start of the second year of this pandemic. And I'd love it if you'd help us sort through all this new information. Can you even believe that we're almost a full year into this? The longest, shortest year of our lives. <laughs> yes, definitely. So um, now we're close to 11 months into the official pandemic, which was declared by the World Health Organization in March. And we have several variants, mutations of the virus circulating out there. Now, we're watching closely three that have been found in the United States. Now, the one we've known about longest is B117, first detected in the UK. There are also variants first detected in Brazil and South Africa. Yeah, so there's a lot of mutations right now. I think there's about, the WHO, I think, said 12,000 mutations, and that's very normal. So the coronavirus is not mutating as quickly as like the flu virus, but it is mutating more so than like the measles virus that hasn't changed since the 60s. So it's kind of somewhere in between. It's normal. It's we expected this. And the reason we're paying attention to these three compared to the other 12,000 is because they have mutations on the spike protein. And the spike protein is important to pay attention to because that is the key into our cells. And so if the virus figures out how to make a smarter key to get into our cells quicker, we need to know that. And so we're paying attention to three mutations, one that uh, was originally detected in the UK, one that was originally detected in South Africa, and another originally detected detected in Brazil. The mRNA vaccines look like they work against the UK variant. The South Africa variant, the vaccines will still work. They won't be as effective, but it, we're, we're very happy to hear this past week that it looks like it's still going to work against it. And just something for us to continue to keep looking at. So according to the CDC, all three of these variants are more transmissible. They're more contagious. So what does that mean for how we live our lives and the precautions that we take while we wait for, you know, our vaccine number to come up? So I'll just talk about the UK variant because we're a lot more familiar with this one. It's more transmissible, which means that so before, you know, we always said if you're in close contact with someone for more than 15 minutes, your likelihood of getting infected goes up exponentially. Well, now we have to divide that number into two. So it's usually it's more about seven to eight minutes now. So it really underlines the importance, and I know everyone is getting sick of this, of masks and social distancing and washing hands and getting your vaccine. 
And if we don't, more infections means more hospitalizations, right? And that's scary to think about because we just are getting down from our first like big peak. And so um, that's it's scary for our healthcare systems to think about what that could do. And again, that's why we are pushing so hard to vaccinate as fast as we can. So we'll get back to the race between variants and vaccines in a couple of minutes. So hold on to that thought. But let's talk a little bit more about how variants can gain a foothold in a population. So the B117 variant, the UK variant, is more transmissible than the strain that is currently dominant in the United States, right? But now that B117 is here, it's competing with our old strain. So say there's a room full of people who don't have any immunity to COVID, and one person comes into the room infected with our old school COVID virus, and another person comes in infected with that upstart B117. Old school and B117 will be competing with each other to infect people. B117, being more contagious, will likely beat old school into the lungs and the cells of most of the people in the room. So B117 dominates and old school fades away. Then B117 starts circulating around the country, infecting more people than old school ever could. And that could mean another surge. A variant surge. Dr. Jetalina, what might that look like? It would be a bigger peak than what we experienced with the holidays. Mix that with the fatigue that everyone's having. Um, it, uh, We don't want to see where it could go. And so if that means an even larger peak, we're going to have to start making really tough decisions. And so we're, we're paying very close attention on how quickly it's spreading in the United States. When you say tough decisions, what kind of tough decisions? Who gets care and who doesn't get care? Who gets a bed? Who doesn't get a bed? How many people have to wait in an emergency department room? Um, I, I There was one example in the United States over the holidays that someone died in the emergency room waiting for a bed. And that's just something we want to avoid. This is why it's really important to vaccinate as quickly as we can, because the more this thing spreads, the more it jumps from person to person, the more opportunity it has to mutate. And so that's why we seem to be in such a big rush to vaccinate. We're really... Um, racing against mutations. And, you know, the the UK variant and the South Africa variant, yeah, they, they may seem a little scary, but to me and to a lot of epidemiologists, what's even scarier is the ones we haven't caught. So Dr. Anthony Fauci likes to say often that a virus that isn't replicating can't mutate. And the reason we're seeing these mutations is because the virus is, you know, basically in charge of us right now. It's spreading and replicating so widely, it has plenty of time to mutate and plenty of new people to infect. So we have to slow it down. So let's dive into vaccines a bit. 
We're all familiar by now with the two that have gotten emergency use authorizations from the FDA and are being distributed across the country, the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine. And they're great and thank goodness for them. But they both require two doses several weeks apart to be fully effective and they need to be kept very cold. Yeah, they are. So they because it's mRNA, mRNA degrades really fast. And so we need to keep them really cold temperatures. So they, they, we slow down their um, the ability to degrade. And so we're lucky in the United States that we have a somewhat structured healthcare system where they, we can have freezers and cold storage for these vaccines, but it is a challenge, especially when you start talking about addressing this as a global pandemic. Um, And yeah, like you said, yeah, two doses. You have to convince people to come back for a second dose, especially if they had a a tough reaction, right? Who wants to come back and sign up for getting a fever and uh, body aches? But uh, it is, it is the reality of this. There's one vaccine that looks like it's a one dose from Johnson & Johnson, and that would be a game changer too. Oh yes, let's talk about that one, Johnson & Johnson. So why would that be a game changer? You don't have to come back for a second dose. You don't have to track people. They don't have to keep these vaccine cards, you know, that people are accidentally putting in their washing machines. It's easier to store. So we can get it, you know, on uh, within CVSs and Walgreens just very easily. We can get it to mass vaccination sites in hard to reach areas like the rural populations or the underserved populations. And so... We're very much looking forward to more vaccine choices because of that. The results of a global trial on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine just came out, and it was only 66% effective at preventing moderate to severe COVID-19 in those enrolled in the trial. Now, that's not nearly as good as the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine, but it's better than your average flu shot. So this vaccine will have a useful role in the fight against this virus, especially in hard-to-reach communities with few resources. Then we have to worry about vaccine hesitancy, people who, for whatever reason, are reluctant to get the shot or shots. Experts in infectious diseases, including Dr. Fauci, estimate we'll need more than 80% of the population to get the vaccine to get to that coveted herd immunity that will put an end to this thing. So, Dr. Jetalina, what do we do about vaccine hesitancy? particularly as it relates to mRNA vaccines, which, because it's a brand new technology, some people see as rushed. Yeah, you know, I think it's important for all of us to understand that vaccine hesitant doesn't mean they're anti-vax, right? So there's a lot of hesitancy, and this is really why what I focus a lot on my blog about right now is explaining the science behind it, explaining that, you know, this vaccine isn't quote unquote new. We've been developing it for decades. It just happens we figured out how to do it effectively for coronavirus. Um, And pointing them to the science. And I also think that we need to respect people's decision as well. And 
understand why they're hesitant and try and address those questions and really listen. I think a lot of people are jumping the gun and getting really mad at vac- people that are vaccine hesitant, and that certainly won't help either. So there's there's a balance to be to be hit as well. You know, I've seen people on social media who say that getting a vaccine is riskier than getting COVID, which some say is 99% survivable. For some reason, it's always 99%. And this drives me crazy. (laughs) Yeah, you know, that 99% figure is a little is frustrating because they get that from the fatality rate. So out of, you know, 100 people that have a positive coronavirus test, one or two of them are going to die. And so that's where they get the one to two percent. And, you know, it's frustrating because, first of all, that number is not correct in that some populations, that number is much higher, especially among older older population, among the pregnant population. And so that's one problem with it. The second problem is... One or two percent of 330 million people is a lot of people. And so it really minimalizes the impact that one percent or two percent really um, means in terms of death and mortality. And then the third thing is that, fine, you, you won't, you might not die, you probably won't die from coronavirus, but we have some been seeing some long-term effects from the impact of um, COVID-19 disease. You know, 10% of people haven't gotten their smell back or their taste back. And that may not seem very um, dire, but a lot of that impacts a lot of people's quality of life. Um, we seeing a lot of impact on the heart and on the brain and on memory and it's called COVID fog, right? On and the reason is this because COVID the virus can touch each one of our organs. So it really is a frustrating number. I know you know that I always get frustrated with that. But again, it, it's going back to the basics and really educating people on why that number is um, not necessarily accurate to spread. You know, I've also read that some people are suspicious of the vaccine because you are still advised to do all of the things, wear a mask, keep your distance, etc., after you get it. So why, if you're vaccinated, do you still have to live like you're not? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's because we're not entirely sure yet if you can transmit the virus, even if you don't get the disease after you have the vaccine. So once you get the vaccine, you won't get the you won't have to go to the ICU, right? You you avoid you have protection against the symptoms and the severity of the disease. What we're not sure of is if you can still host the virus and then spread it to other people still. We're hopeful that you can't. There is preliminary data out there that shows that maybe transmission isn't reduced 100%, but maybe more like 60 to 70%, which would still be fantastic. And so we're waiting on the data to come out. 
Since we're talking about masks, now that we're concerned about the more contagious variants, some experts are recommending you wear two masks. I got some KN95 masks, which my daughter says make us look like ducks, but we're wearing them anyway. So what are you recommending now as far as masks go? You need at least two layers on a cloth mask. Three is the most ideal. Now... Our research shows that cloth masks with two layers um, works about 40% of the time, which is good, but it's not 100% like a N95 does. Now, because of the new variants, because of the increased transmissibility, having two masks helps increase that 40%. And that is something that we really want to start doing so we can get this thing under control until we get vaccines in arms. So yes, I mean, two masks is way better than one mask. But right now we're just trying to get people to wear one mask though too. So um, really one mask is better than zero, two masks is better than one, and an N95 or even your KN95, uh, they work well too. I have a cousin who is a bartender, and she said recently she wants to wear two masks if it's safer, but she says one mask is hard enough and she's not sure she can make herself wear two. I hear her, right? It Two masks is hard. Even wearing one mask is really hard, but what's even harder is getting the coronavirus. And even if you survive the first two weeks of your infection, we still don't know the long-term effects of coronavirus. And we're seeing that it's a nasty disease. And so I, I don't know what I tell her. I just, you know, you empathize and you, and you're, you say, yeah, it sucks, but getting the disease sucks even more. And um, hopefully it's not for much longer too. Another thing I'm hearing a lot about is shame from healthy people who are offered a vaccine. They're ashamed to take it because there are priority groups, and rightly so, that are supposed to be vaccinated first. And we aren't even close to having all of our healthcare workers or elderly people or otherwise at-risk folks vaccinated. But some younger, healthier people have been offered a vaccine through work or some other way, and they feel guilty about taking it. What do you think about that? Yeah, you know, I was actually one of them. I felt really guilty for getting it. I am a healthy individual. I have no comorbidities. And to me... People need to understand that some institutions have the vaccine for you and they can't give it to other people. For example, my institution, they had these vaccines for their employees and they cannot give it to anyone else. And so it's actually hurting people if you don't take that vaccine and it's offered to you. Yes, I agree that this isn't right, but take the vaccine so we can get closer to herd immunity and and then help others figure out how to get their vaccine, right? So my my grandpa is 91 years old and he had to type in his information in order to find a slot. Once he picked that slot and typed in his information, the slot was gone. And so he had to keep doing that over and over again. And so I think we also have an opportunity to help our neighbors as well. Um, 
even if you're offered the vaccine, take it, but then go help others to figure out how to get them the vaccine too. Dr. Jetalina brings up a vexing issue there. So I'd like to elaborate for a minute before getting back to our conversation with her. So I've heard stories like the one she just told about her grandpa's struggle to sign up for a vaccine over and over again. Older folks who aren't adept at navigating the internet not being able to sign up for a vaccine, and even if they have the skills, the sites are crashing as demand overwhelms servers. Other people, older people, poor people, a lot of them don't even have internet access. We also know demand has far outstripped supply so far, leaving people who live in high-risk communities vulnerable. There are striking racial disparities in how the vaccine has been allocated so far. For example, in Texas, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation, 44% of COVID cases and nearly half of the deaths come from the state's large Latino population. But as of January 19th, only 15% of those vaccinated in Texas are Latino. So I get the guilt about taking a vaccine if you're youngish and healthyish, if it's offered to you, and the inclination to try to give it to someone who might need it more. But the fact is, that's not how any of this works. You can't give a vaccine that is offered to you away. And if you refuse it, it might go to waste. And we can't afford that. Every shot in every arm brings us closer to herd immunity, which protects at-risk communities, too, because that's how we end the pandemic. President Biden says the federal government is buying 200 million more doses of vaccine from Pfizer and Moderna and will increase vaccine allocation to states this week. He further pledges that 300 million Americans will be vaccinated by the end of summer. That's the end game. That's herd immunity. If 300 million Americans are vaccinated, we're done with this. But right now, as Dr. Jetalina mentioned earlier in our conversation, we're in a race against these mutations, and we need as many people vaccinated as possible as quickly as possible. You're right. I mean, we can get a mutation today or in a couple months, and it will be able to completely escape the vaccine. And so all of these people would have to get a new vaccine. And that is worst case scenario. Best case scenario, and this could certainly happen, and a lot of scientists are hopeful about this, especially with the coronavirus, is that this mutates into the common cold. The, the virus's goal isn't to kill. The virus's goal is to live. And if it wants to live and we're getting smarter than it, it needs to learn that if it becomes the common cold, we're not going to be so worried about it. And so there's really two directions the mutations could go. And and that's, you know, that we don't know. And I don't think we want to make that gamble. And so you're right. We need to reach herd immunity as, as quickly as we can. So year one of this pandemic is almost over. We're heading into year two. How do you feel? You know, I feel I feel very hopeful. Uh, when this started a year ago, the idea of having a vaccine in nine, ten months seemed very distant. And we are starting off 2021 with vaccines in arms. It's going to get better. We are outsmarting this virus. And to me, that's incredibly hopeful. 
that we see it may be a small light at the end of the tunnel, but we see something glimmering down there. And I think that's really important for people to hold on to because this has upended all of our lives. And so I hope that other people are as hopeful as I am. Thank you, Dr. Jetalina. This time last year, we were vaguely aware that something not great was happening on the other side of the planet. We knew a novel coronavirus, similar to SARS but not SARS, was spreading rapidly in China. We knew it could spill over that country's borders at any time and race around the globe. People were starting to nervously consider the word pandemic. Is that where we might be headed? But life in the first week of February 2020 was still solidly life in the before times. The Kansas City Chiefs won the Super Bowl in front of more than 62,000 people. President Trump was acquitted in the Senate, a Senate that was not physically distanced after being impeached by the House for abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. And on February 6th in California, an apparently healthy 57-year-old woman died. According to the San Francisco Chronicle, Patricia Dowd had been recovering from a virus that was described as flu-like. She was working from home, doing okay, and then suddenly she was dead. The medical examiner thought maybe she'd had a heart attack, but couldn't identify the virus that made her sick. Not until April, anyway, when Santa Clara County announced its autopsy results. Patricia Dowd had died of COVID-19. She hadn't traveled anywhere. She didn't pick up the virus in China or from someone who'd traveled to China. At some point in mid to late January 2020, Patricia Dowd got the virus in Northern California through community spread. So in the first week of February 2020, the United States recorded its first death from COVID-19. By the end of the first week of February 2021, more than 450,000 Americans will have died from this virus, according to numbers from the COVID tracking project. But your local epidemiologist, Caitlin Jadalina, is hopeful. We have variants, yes, but we also have vaccines. And by the end of the summer, President Biden has set a goal for 300 million of us to be vaccinated. Will that happen? It remains to be seen. But if it happens, by February 2022, life should be something like normal, with normal strains and struggles and normal joys and victories. So, Dr. Jetalina is hopeful, she says. And you know what? I'm hopeful, too. This episode of Petri Dish Side Dish was produced by me. Our sound designer is Jacob Rosati. Our executive producer is Fernanda Camarena. TPR's news director is Dan Katz. Mark Mehmet is managing editor of the Texas Newsroom. 
This podcast is a production of TPR and the Texas Newsroom, a collaboration between public radio stations across Texas and NPR. I'm Bonnie Petrie. Talk to you soon.